It's the TEH Podcast, episode 105. I'm Leo Notenboom of AskLeo.com. And I'm Gary Rosenzweig from MacMost.com. How's life, Gary? Oh, uh, pretty good. You know, into the the heat of the summer now. It's just I wonder so what that's hot. like. You, know, you have it's to remember, cool. I'm in the Seattle area. It's, yeah. it's July the 7th, is it, today? And it's raining. Um, so. Yeah, you have statewide air conditioning. We do. We do. Um, it breaks every once in a while, but for the most part, yeah, we're, we're, <laughs> yeah. we're cool and wet. Um, so category, um, things you never thought you'd put on your resume. Yeah. I, c- I can now, um, add to my resume, uh, Corgi midwife, um, hmm. for the second time this weekend, I was, um, re- my assistance was requested. Now, normally when my assistance is requested, it's related to things like, you know, computers, technology, help me fix this windows bug, etc. Yeah. No, um, a dog was having a, uh, a scheduled semi-scheduled C-section and, oh. um, that requires various forms of assistance of which I have apparently been trained. And, um, it's an, it's an interesting and fun experience. Fun is a good word for it, I suppose. But it's a really interesting experience to, uh, to be there in the, uh, in the back of the veterinary office, um, you know, where they're slicing open a dog and pulling out puppies and, uh, working, working like crazy to, uh, to, uh, help welcome, welcome said puppies into the world. Yeah. Well, you can't beat puppies. So. Yeah, no, it's 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 entertaining, and, and and now of course I have the best part actually because the the, uh, um, the breeder is one who I mean she seriously takes care of her dogs. It's it's amazing, and now for the next month, if she weren't self quarantining already, she'd be self quarantining because she's spending like twenty four hours a day with the dogs. She goes mm-hmm. in and you know sleeps in the room, that kind of stuff. So. Yeah. But yeah, so that was my weekend. So that's actually part of why I am semi-sleep deprived today. In addition, um, in order to uh, to lighten her load a little bit, we've taken two of her dogs for uh, a few weeks. So we actually have six dogs running around. Uh, wow, running, running around our house right now, wow. which is why when I said before we started recording that um, we needed to take the dogs out, this is no small amount of work. It's uh, it's all six corgis. All six corgis go out. They all get rained on. Um, <laughs> they all need to get wiped down because, uh, you know, of course, they're corgis. They're low enough to the ground that they will they act as sponges just by walking over the grass. So, uh, yeah, we're uh, ever so slightly sleep deprived because there's, there's yeah. a lot of activity in the house right now. Plus, if you add up the lengths of all of the legs of all six corgis, you almost get a length that's as much as my one American foxhound. One dog. Yep. <laughs> you have two, pretty much two opposite, uh, opposite <laughs> types of breeds in terms of leg length there. When we were originally considering what dogs to get, this, I mean, literally this goes back 23 years when we moved into this house, uh, we, semi, we were kind of considering getting a corgi and um, a, a rescue greyhound one of the retired mm. racing yep. dogs. And uh, that too would have been an interesting study in opposites because the greyhounds are, uh, uh, you know, very long legged, very slight. Very, yes. um, the, the, the corgi is very short legged, very stocky. And uh, of course the, uh, the ground, uh, the greyhound would have been running over the dogs multiple times, <laughs> but <laughs> we got, we got hooked on the short ones and have, you know, the, the rest as they say is history. Anyway. Yes. What's going on with you? Anything exciting? 
Oh, not too much. I, uh, I see in your world there, you've got uh, Microsoft's given up on the, on the whole idea of competing with Apple stores. <laughs> well, that's one way to look at it. Okay, we'll go ahead with that. Um, it <laughs> certainly was interesting when they opened them. Um, there are a couple of articles that I ran across over the past couple of weeks, actually. This is, I think, a week or two old news, but um, ZDNet has one that says, you know, the headline is, I went to a Microsoft store and all I saw was Apple laughing. Um, <laughs> the, uh, and, and in a way, it's kind of sad. Uh, I've, I've visited an Apple store. Well, there's an Apple store and a Microsoft store in one of the local shopping malls. That seems to be the, one of the criteria for Microsoft store placement is that there had to be an Apple store nearby. Mm. Um, so it's hard to say that they weren't trying to compete head to head. Um, except to me, it never really did make a tremendous amount of sense because especially at the time, Microsoft wasn't really doing hardware. And even now hardware, while they do have a line of machines, it's not their primary business, right? They're, who knows really what their primary business is? Well, if you look at Apple, um, it's pretty clear uh, you want to buy hardware from them and then buy, you know, use soft, their software forever. Um, so Microsoft's always had kind of a mixed message when it comes to the uh, when it comes to their retail stores, but they have elected to uh, close all of their retail stores. Uh, the quote from The Verge or the headline from The Verge is Microsoft to permanently close all of its retail stores. They're actually keeping, I think, five or six of the locations, but they're not going to be stores anymore. They're going to be experiences, whatever the heck that means, right? Yeah, yeah some kind of you know, probably a, you know, isn't Microsoft wonderful kind of store. I don't know if it's like a, a Microsoft theme park. That actually would be kind of an interesting, an interesting uh, concept. I wonder what the rides would be like. They would, they would probably crash. Ah, ha ah, 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 ha yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I couldn't resist. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the, the one comment that on the, on that ZDNet article, that the uh, that the writer made was um, he actually visited a a Microsoft store that had been closed for the pandemic as most stores are they closed them for the pandemic prior to making this more global decision but uh, the store actually had basically been emptied and which is not you know pandemic behavior the assumption of course was for a pandemic fine you know you leave things in place and eventually you come back and open the place up again but they had actually emptied the store and most of the stuff was gone and it looking kind of sad and the way he described it was it stood there like a sad armadillo in a desert of despair oh, wow. and i just i thought that was so so wonderfully poetic and and poignant uh, i have to admit I can't really say I ever saw the point of a Microsoft store. Uh, I've, I've been to it a couple of times. Uh, there was never really a point to my going there. Uh, it's not like they were, it's not like you go there for Windows support. It's not like you go there for Microsoft Office support. You go there for, to buy either Microsoft Surface machines or maybe some of the third, you know, the other manufacturers' machines that they sold there at the time. Uh, it's certainly the intent when they opened them was that we would all be buying Zunes and yes. um, Xboxes. Of course, Xbox was always prominently on display. But uh, even that kind of sort of, you know, slowly kind of fell by the wayside as things like the the Xbox, what was it, the Kinect that um, basically watched you and, and um, you know, you can... Yeah, you you can gesture and do could, yeah, make gestures okay. and so forth and have it that even that's even gotten you know deprecated over time so i'm not really sure 
if if the Microsoft Store ever really completely made sense. Uh, and I have to admit that in general, I was relatively uncomfortable going into these places because uh, I'm an introvert and they had lots of staff uh, who basically, I don't want to say they wouldn't leave you alone, but like if there was no way to go into the store without having to talk to somebody. And that's not my mode of operation, right? <laughs> if I want if I go into a computer store, I just want to look around. I want to, I want to, you know, see for myself. I don't want to answer questions about why I'm there or, or no, I don't need your help. Thank you very much. And no, I don't need your help either. And thanks, but no, thanks. I don't need your help. Uh, so it, that was kind of a, an odd experience for me. My trips to the Apple store, on the other hand, which um, up until recently uh, made a tremendous amount of sense. Uh, you know, we're all support related, right? I mean, I, I ordered my machines online. They came online, but it was wonderful to be able to say, you know, hey, I got a problem with my MacBook Pro. Uh, we'll bring it in and they fixed it and it was just wonderful. That's not something that necessarily happened at the Microsoft store, certainly not if you weren't buying Microsoft hardware. So, the, you know, the Apple experience was always good. My question for you, though, uh -huh is really about, um, you know, like I said, the Microsoft Store to me was kind of sort of always doomed and the, the pandemic was really just the nail in the coffin, the decision-making inflection point that says, okay, let's just call it. Uh, Apple Stores, on the other hand, I mean, it's kind of the bigger question about in-person retail. Does in-person retail still justify the expense? Um, and, you know, will they open up again? How will they open up again? What's it going to look like? Our Apple store is going to change the way that they have to do business. And will it still be a viable model for, uh, for Apple? Do you think? Well, yeah, I think, uh, clearly it will because of that, you know, first of all, they have, uh, that support element as part of all of their stores, you know, the genius bar and just having it as a drop-off pickup point for repairs and orders and returns and all of that um, probably saves them from a, like a logistics nightmare of everybody always having to send things here and there. You know, you can go and physically drop off your computer or have somebody look at it and perhaps come up with a solution right then and there. Right. And not have this whole thing where, you know, you're without your computer for a few days. Um, I think that works out really well for Apple. And it probably is like, not as expensive as people think. Like it may even even save them money. You know, if if a certain number, you know, out of like a hundred people that walk in, there's a certain number of them that can walk back out with a solution uh, pretty quickly and inexpensively on Apple's part, um, as a, as opposed to having all those people having to return products or spend more time on phone support, that kind of thing. That's just really nice to be able to do. Uh, also, of course, Apple does sell a ton of product, and I, I think. You know, the Apple stores, in a way, are better suited for post-pandemic, you know, shopping than most stores are. Because, like, I think right now, the way they're doing is if you want to go into my local Apple store, it's open. But there's only a certain number of people allowed in the store. So right. there's a line. And the line, everybody's six feet apart. And you wait in line. And when, you know, one person leaves, another person enters. And you can go in and, and look at what you want to look at. Um, and Apple already was doing that for things like on big launch days and things like that. So, you know, I think they, it was a very easy transition for them to do this. A very natural, too, as opposed to other stores where you browse around for clothing or gifts or something where it would have been weird. You know, you, you walk in, in, the, in the mall 
and you say, oh, look at this nice, you know, clothing store. Let me go and see what they have. But if there's a line of seven people, you know, like, oh, I'm going to get in line because I want to browse. No, probably not. You just skip over the line. Apple store, I think people will say, sure, I'll get in line. I, I don't know. It's just my, my feeling. And the reports are from my local store here that plenty of people are getting in line and waiting for their chance to go in and look at Apple stuff. Are those people yeah. waiting for support or are they waiting to shop? Some are uh, support, some are waiting to shop. Interesting. So, yeah. And actually, they'll go down the line and, at, you know, sometimes ask. And I guess if they have, maybe if they have fewer people in the back for support than they have at front shopping, they may pull like the next support function out of the line, you know, or whatever, you know. So they, they kind of manage the line. But, you know, Apple employees have been used to managing lines right. and customers in and out since the beginning. So, uh, so it puts them in a pretty good position. Plus, they have tons of staff who Apple have, has kept paying through all of this, whether the store's open or not. Um, you know, and the staff are pretty highly trained and very organized. Uh, so, you know, uh, putting things into place, like cleaning routines and stuff like that, I think has been pretty easy for Apple. Plus, they sell high-priced products too. So, um, you know, for, for all... Well, I would, I would be surprised if the percentage of people walking into Apple stores and walking out with a purchased product, it's higher now, matter of fact, much higher now than it was before. Because, you know, obviously, you know, if you're going to wait in line, you're probably more towards leaning towards the, oh, there's something I want to buy today. <laughs> it's, the, you know? it's the sunk cost fallacy, right? I've, yeah. I've invested all this time. I better buy something. Well, exactly. <laughs> or, or I'm not going to wait in line because I, I did just want to browse and they were the un people unlikely to buy. Right. So, so there's that. But I also wanted to uh, uh, mention from the Microsoft store, you know, we had one of the first Microsoft stores here near me right. in the Park Meadows Mall in Colorado. I think it was really close to the first one. Like I think it was the second one outside of Seattle or something. And I went there several times, but not recently. I went there shortly after they opened, maybe the first two, three years mm -hmm. that they were there. And I really liked it, but I understand why other people don't. The reasons I liked it, first of all, they had tons of Xbox stuff and I'm an Xbox guy. That's the console <laughs> I got. So they, t they have tons. It's like, an, you know, half the store was like an Xbox store, right. which was nice. You know, not to have to go into like GameStop and then there's PlayStation stuff and Nintendo stuff. And it's like, nope, there's a bunch of games. They're all here. They're all Xbox. And, uh, and then they had Xboxes that you could play and, you know, had games on them. Uh, they had lots of gadgets. You know, some of them were Zunes and the, the last generation of Windows phones at the time. Right. Uh, but they had gadgets, different things you can connect to PCs. They had some PCs there from other companies. And some of those were really powerful, like, you know, gaming machines, you know, $6,000 things. Right. And they also had some cool tech, like they had screens that wrapped all around the inside of the store and the graphics were actually linked up. So you might see a game character run from screen to screen to screen all the way around the store. And I thought that was so cool. And Apple didn't have any of that, but I think there was a reason. Uh, I was really like geeking out in the Microsoft store and I think that's not what you generally want to do, especially, you know, Apple. You don't want to go in there into, you know, a store like that and, uh, you know, you're not a geek, you're not like a techie and think, oh, this is like way too futuristic, high tech, oh, you know, right. gizmo stuff for me. You want to feel it's all friendly and nice and look how cool the, this MacBook looks and it's so nice to type on and everything. Right. And I, I really got to get one of these. And Microsoft 
appealed more towards the the geek end of things. But I liked it. <laughs> I was like, you know, just really impressed by, like, you know, I don't know. It, it felt it felt like a store that uh, if I got to that mall more often, which I don't, uh, I would probably make it a normal stop in that mall. Just you know, I want to go and see what they've got. You know, cool stuff, fun games, cool things on the screens. Interesting. I, I never felt like I had to go in. I always ended up walking past both the Apple store and the Microsoft store in our local shopping mall. But, um, you know, I had like, I think one visit in the Microsoft store and I actually think I spent some money. I think I bought a mouse or something like that just because that's what <laughs> I happened to, happened to need. At that's the what time. you do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, um, it wasn't a, you know, it's not a, it's not a place that, um, um, that I really saw a lot of point for, um, uh, certainly myself. And I just don't know if average consumers really found the same kind of, of level of support, level of comfort that, um, that absolutely the Apple stores were architected for, right? They're architected to, to show off their products and how their products really work and help real people. I also right. like the Sony stores, which I think have, haven't been around for a few years, or at least the one in my mall. I don't recall if those, yeah. So, Sony stores were just, I mean, it was everything Sony. So they had TVs, but cool TVs, curved TVs, 3D TVs, you know, with the glasses sitting right there and you could stick them on and, and see 3D. They had so many headphones <laughs> they had um all sorts of sony gadgets and devices and audio products and video products and just so it was like oh, just a really cool tech store um just browse around and see all this stuff and you know it was definitely uh it was much more fun for me to browse around and then say you know your typical mall store right right yeah, that's one of the things that's happened to our mall is it's tried to go upscale-ish. And a lot of the really interesting places for me um, kind of sort of have fallen by the wayside. Um, you know, the stores like Sharper Image and Brookstone and, you know, the gadget stores, the, the toy yeah. store, you know, the, the adult toy stores, not adult toys, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> grown-up grown up toy stores. Yes. Um, but those are all gone, right? It's all now, um, you know, high-end clothing and boutique shops and that kind of stuff. So I never almost, I don't think I've been to that mall now for a couple of years. I, I think we still have a Brookstone. Yeah, there's still a Brookstone in my uh, nearby mall, the Cherry Creek Mall in Denver. The, um, um, that's got... What, uh, what, the one thing that I think then, I mean, it, everything you're saying about the Apple stores makes a lot of sense. And I think that, that, that you're right. It pro they probably do have a much better chance of, of coming out of all of this if they haven't already. Um, but the other concern I have is malls in general. Um, there's a, uh, I have heard, there's sort of a general feeling that, you know, maybe mall shopping, which was already kind of sort of in decline before all this, mm -hmm. uh, is something that may end up also uh, decline even further. And what that really does for Apple is it makes their location choices um, a little bit more interesting. Because Apple is, of course, for most folks, it's going to be a destination, right? If I go to, if I go to this mall in Bellevue, it's because I'm going to the Apple store, right? It's the, it's mm -hmm. my destination. Uh, and uh, they don't need to be in a mall for that. No, and so, uh, like uh, my second closest Apple store is not. It, it's in technically a, a modern day strip mall, you know, not a crappy old 70s right. strip mall, but you know, right. a big new development outdoor mall kind of thing. And so, of course, you know, nobody is walking up and down browsing right. uh, the stores for that. Um, and most of Apple's flagship stores 
uh, you know, the ones in like New York and San Francisco and all that, and all sorts of different places around the world in the Louvre, <laughs> uh, for instance, <laughs> that those are not, those are not, um, you know, uh, in malls. I mean, those are standalone stores, right? Yeah. yeah. The Louvre is kind of in a little, it's, there's a mall, but the, um, you know, it's, uh, yeah, there, so I, I think either way Apple works and I think, uh, malls will still be around. I think the, the thing with, malls is quantity there's a certain quantity of malls so if the model of malls isn't working anymore it's only not working at this quantity so like in the denver area there might be 40 malls you know in the greater denver metro area right and if they're not working anymore some of them are going to close and at some point when it gets in the 30 25 20 you know something like that suddenly the model works again right. you know there's enough people that want to go to malls still um, enough stores that want to be in them that you close those, the ones that weren't performing well, and now the rest of them can thrive. Same thing with movie theaters. You know, uh, we're going to probably see a lot of movie theaters close, but at oh, some absolutely. point, yeah. at some point, there'll be like this critical mass of like, okay, enough have closed, and now the ones that are still around can continue to uh, operate because they'll they'll sell enough tickets to to make it worthwhile. Yep, I'm. I'm. I, I've talked before about the the movie. My movie going experience these days of up until the pandemic was IPIC, which was a, uh, I guess they call it a luxury movie theater. Yeah. Uh, they, you know, you're you're sitting in recliners. Uh, there's not as many people in the theater, and they serve you food and alcohol. And it's actually, it's actually an experience that ended up spoiling me. That I went there once, and I've never gone to a normal oh, theater sure. again. Uh, and I'm hoping that those are the kinds of places that ends up make end up making it because I think there's uh, it makes it much a much more pleasant experience and I really think that in order to draw people back to the movie theater, um, that's the kind of thing that's going to have to happen. It's going to have to be more than just the movie. Uh, it's going to have to be the whole experience. Right, and you know it's uh, you know we've got a lot of movie theaters converting to that model, so that's definitely the the future. But I think what it's going to be interesting is the fact that movie theaters need movies. Yes. And if, you know, after, you know, when movie theaters reopen again, and I think AMC just said the end of July, they hope to do it. Uh, yeah. Good luck. with the, Yeah. We'll see. They already pushed, pushed it back a month and uh, it might go more. The, the problem is if some movie theaters open in some parts of the country, you know, who wants to release their movie into say, you know, half the movie theaters are open. Right. And uh, and even those half the people still don't want to go. So your your hope for a hundred million dollar opening weekend, the best you can hope for now is like twenty five million tops. Right. You know, uh, and as a matter of fact, there's a story this week of, uh, you know, the what was supposed to be a big summer blockbuster movie, Greyhound, starring Tom Hanks, written by Tom Hanks, you know, big World War Two film. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's going to. It was bought by Apple TV Plus. So Friday, I'll be able to watch it for free because of my subscription. Yep. Um, and Tom Hanks has been very vocal about the fact that he's really disappointed that he made this to be seen in theaters, and nobody's going to be seeing it in theaters. Uh, you know, they they basically. So so what happens when you have a movie like that and their choice is, well, the best we can hope for is maybe $25 million opening weekend. And then, you know, maybe eventually after a year, we get to a hundred million dollars worldwide box office gross or Apple TV, Apple 
or Amazon or Netflix is going to pay us $120 million in cash right now. Today, yes. Yep. Yeah. In fact, I think we've, we've already, haven't we already experienced a little bit of this? I think it was Trolls 2. It's certainly not a Tom Hanks movie, but yeah. that's the one that was making the headlines a couple of months ago because they ended up releasing, uh, in, they had intended to release to cinema and they had released online streaming instead. And it mm-hmm. was to their surprise, much more successful than they were expecting. So I think that too is what the theaters are competing with. That's why I say it's as much about the experience as anything else. Um, we've, we've talked about this before. I mean, it's awesome to be able to sit in your room and decide, you know what, I need another beer. Pause. You know, those kinds of things, right? That, that you just can't do in a theater. And um, so I'm, I'm, it'll be really interesting to me to see exactly which movies end up getting released in theaters at all, which ones end up getting released online streaming simultaneously, uh, or if the delta between theater release and uh, streaming release is going to get uh, incrementally smaller. Yeah, I think, it, I think it's probably going to be, it's probably going to start with some movies that are in the middle. The big, big movies will go right to streaming because they'll get paid a lot right. by the companies. The small movies will say, well, you know, there's enough, there's enough capacity out there that we could still do, you know, the business that we expected to do. And then, um, you know, they'll, they'll go to, uh, I guess these are medium-sized movies. You know, they would go to theaters. And then the small ones, they just won't have any room. So they will go uh, to streaming, even though they may have actually made it into theaters uh, anyway, past, it, right. yeah, and, and and then it'll change as more op- more theaters and more places open, and we see the numbers and all that. One of the interesting things uh, I heard a lot of people commenting about because I was reading some of the comment threads of various sites about this when Apple announced that they had purchased Greyhound, that um, you know Tom Hanks said this is supposed to be seen on a big screen, big sound system in a movie theater, big movie going experience, and a lot of people went and said, well, the hell with that. Um, I'm not up for that. I have my 4K TV, all my you know surround sound audio equipment, right. my theater chairs at home, and I will and I can watch it complete silence with no interruptions from any people around me. Right. You know, like I get in the theaters, no sticky floors, <laughs> no no dealing with parking. Well, at you least know. if if it is sticky, you'll know why. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and it made me think a little bit about. You know, so those people obviously are cinephiles, like high-end, right? They've right. invested all this money to create their home theaters. And there are a lot of them. It's no longer a big deal. Like, you know, it used to be a big deal. You have a whole room and you have it, like, people install things and yes. all that. Now, you can get an 80-plus-inch 4K TV, you know, with a brilliant picture. Mm-hmm. Um, and the equipment to play uh, 1080 or 4K is sometimes the standard equipment you would buy whether you wanted it or not. Right. Um, and also the sound stuff is getting pretty standard too. So I don't know if the argument holds up that, oh, you can only really experience this truly in a theater. I think for some people that's true. I think there are others that will argue there, it's better in their home theaters. There are movies that, I mean, this is a, a um, a position my wife and I have had for years. There are movies that we want to see, but they don't need a big screen. Right? They don't, yeah. We don't oh, need definitely. a theater. But there are definitely movies that, you know what? We want to see this movie, 
but we really do want the theater experience. And it's not just the whole, you know, comfy, comfy seats thing is even the uncomfortable ones. You want it on the big screen with the, with the big sound system. And I'm thinking the, the big visual epics, you know, like the Lord of the Rings trilogy and, and the Marvel comic book, you know, Marvel universe comic book movies. Um, those were movies that we explicitly wanted to see in the theater just because of the, of their, I don't know, how you want to call it just because of their visual impact it just sure. it is absolutely different and more impactful in a theater uh is it enough for me to go into a theater today yeah, probably not you know i mean that's the other thing i think that that the theaters and the the movie producers are having to fight with it's not just about can we open um it's uh, you know will anybody show up because I think that that's something that many industries are going to be facing for a while. Restaurants, stores, malls, um, and movie theaters. How soon will enough people feel comfortable getting back into a crowded situation before, uh, you know, for, for whatever their business is uh, to continue to make sense? Yeah, and another um, uh, thing to think about is pricing too. So you've got, um, you know, when you, Netflix or Apple TV Plus gets a, film uh it's you know you have your uh subscription so it's it's free right um but you've got other movies that are now you know in first you know release and stuff online like for instance uh well i think the um the new steve carell uh movie uh let's say a political uh, oh, comedy oh oh yeah i've seen it i've i don't know the name but i've, I've yeah. seen a, an ad for yeah. it i think at least uh yeah, irresistible. That's what okay. it is. And the um, also the uh, oh, what other one? Oh, King of Staten Island, things like that. So these are movies that were supposed to be out in the theater, but now they're going straight. And they're the the price is twenty bucks. So the interesting thing is, is that you know they can't restrict how many people are watching it. If you have a if you're an individual in your apartment watching, it's twenty bucks. If you're a family of six, it's twenty bucks. And it, that's some, some good and some bad because, you know, if you're an individual, you're like, oh, I would normally have spent, you know, less than 20 bucks going to the movie theater myself. Maybe not that much less as the prices were getting close to that. <laughs> right. But, you know, it's like now I'm, I'm spending more to watch it at home than I would have to go to the theater. Uh, a couple is definitely spending less, a little bit less. And a family spending a lot less. And actually, I think that might be a good thing because... You know, one of the complaints I've often heard is that, like, family movie night. You know, if you have three kids, and it's family movie night. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah, you're, you're it's a hundred bucks right there, you know, for the tickets and just a couple snacks. But the other um, thing too is that, I mean, you know, you may be paying twenty bucks if you quote unquote want to rent it online. But a lot of yeah. these movies are being released as part of the streaming subscription service. Well, yeah, so, that's that's a different story. Then, then the price is constant. The price is constant, and it's incrementally zero, right? I mean, you're you're already yeah. paying a fixed fee for access right. to the service, and you get this movie and our gazillion other movies, and you can watch them whenever, however many times, however many people, uh, that kind of stuff. So. That's the that to me is the more compelling one, and for what I've seen is that a lot of these quote unquote first run movies aren't necessarily being released on a rental model; they're being released simply as part of a streaming service, as more incentive for people to sign up for that specific streaming service. Right, and that's true with uh, um, with Greyhound, and also uh, last weekend was true with Hamilton. Mm -hmm. Right, so you know, and that and the Hamilton. I mean, you in Hamilton actually you, you could see exactly what the why they spend money on these because like I had 
you know, I saw people saying, you know, oh, I'm so excited about Hamilton, but I just found out it's only on Disney Plus. So I guess I have to sign up for the trial of Disney Plus. <laughs> right. Well, that's exactly what Disney Plus wants. They that's know exactly that a, it. Yep. Yep. a certain number of people will sign up for the trial of Disney Plus just because Hamilton's on it, and a certain percentage of those will become subscribers. I will and, admit that I am a CBS All Access subscriber specifically yes. because of the Star Trek content. Yep. So, you know, they, you have to keep a constant stream of content in there. And I don't know. It's a, I think, it, I think uh, you can, in the end, I like to look at this from the artist's viewpoint. Mm -hmm. And there are, there are more uh, patrons out there for artists, for video uh, film artists than ever before. Because, you know, it's not like you have to get your film produced, then go and take it to a film festival, and then get it picked up for distribution. You know, now you've got Netflix, Amazon, you know, uh, HBO and Apple and I mean, all these places. Right. Uh, and sometimes they, for some uh, things, they'll pay you money before you even produce what it is. You know, you don't right. have to produce the film, take it to a festival. So having more patrons out there means more pieces of art will get made, um, which means, you know, hopefully more jobs for, it's a, it's for a creatives. Mixed, it's a mixed blessing for artists though, because on one hand, You've got more eyeballs for your work, which is fantastic. But you're also competing with many more other artists for those eyeballs. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's one of the things we're noticing is that there's actually a lot of good stuff on TV. Stuff oh, yeah. that, I mean, where, where TV these days really means subscription services. Um, there's just a lot of it out there. And there's so much of it that we're actually having to make hard decisions because there's also only so many hours in the day. And I think that that uh, scales across the entire audience, that people, they may have access to everything, but they're not going to watch everything. And um, that means it's harder for, uh, it's, it's both easier and harder for an individual artist to get their work in front of people. It's the YouTube model, right? I mean, YouTube, when it starts yeah. to take off, I mean, it's really, really hard to get eyeballs. You have to work at it. Uh, it's not as easy as perhaps it once was. And it's, um, just, it's, it's just so full of content that you just can't watch it all. You can't see it all. Even all the stuff you're interested in, you can't watch it all. So I like that, though. I like that you can produce something and get your chance. Oh, sure. You know? I mean, you know, whereas before you may have not gotten any chance. I mean, I, I, that's how I got my start in sure. my career with video, you know, with computer games was just before I started with computer games, I had no chance of, of making in computer games because I would have had to create a studio, create a game, get a public, you know, get a, you know, somebody to produce it. And, right. you know, get a publisher, get into stores. I mean, it was a very restricted model to get any. And then all of a sudden the internet happened just as I was about to do this. And it was like, oh, I could just put my own games online. Right. Uh, and that was fantastic. And it's the same thing, I think, for people creating, uh, well, for people creating music, that revolution's already happened. Right. And now for video, uh, it's like well underway. And yeah, it does mean it's hard. You know, if, if your work gets out there, it's harder. But if your stuff is good, I was or if, say, it's, if it's just a even if it's just you can get enough you know get your 10,000 fans right you know that like what you're doing you don't have to appeal to millions and millions of people you can appeal uh you know and keep your artistic integrity and say hey I'm just going to appeal to just the people that like this kind of thing 
and then find out there's enough of them that I can keep making my art, you know, as my career. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. In an ideal world also, it's one of those things where competition, um, uh, increases or, or encourages quality. It's not yes. necessarily true. If you take a look at like the trending videos on YouTube, I mean, it's quality mm-hmm. to somebody, right? I mean, it's, it's yeah. certainly got somebody's eyeballs, but, um, in terms of, of, you know, uh, is this something that is truly uh, quality content? Uh, I know that certainly in niches, like your your niche and mine, right? So yeah. you know, uh, tech support kind of stuff. Uh, I honestly do believe that quality matters. It matters a lot. Uh, you know, if you can do a clear video demonstrating something, that's going to do better than uh, you know the video of somebody who. Uh, you know, isn't, isn't speaking clearly, doesn't have good audio, doesn't have a good screen capture, you know, all those kinds of things add up. And hopefully in the long run, quality wins, but it is a long run. It is a long game that, that, that producers, uh, artists, video producers, music producers, movie producers end up having to play. Yep. Indeed. So I hear you're loony. (laughs) Well, just a story that caught my eye today is, um, because it's fun to say, is <laughs> I know loon balloons. Uh, so this is, uh, you know, we talk a lot about different ways that in the future we may get internet. Right. You know, we talk a lot about what SpaceX is doing and all sorts of things. And one of the ways that um, is actually being used a little bit now, and it's going to be used a bit more, is having balloons. Uh, and so instead of cell towers, you know, we have a physical tower with, uh, you know, the, the transmitters sitting on top of them, uh, having this stuff in balloons that hover above the ground. Um, and these are independent balloons, not tethered or anything like that. Matter of fact, they're quite high, 20,000 kilometers wow. up. Uh, so they, they go way up there. And they're kind of autonomous as they, they have enough power on board to kind of fight the wind or go with the wind and ride currents and stuff and stay kind of stable. Uh, this was a, a, a project started by Google, and then it became Alphabet. And then it was actually spun off into its own company, Loon, but it's you know under the umbrella of Alphabet, which is really just Google. Um, the, uh, and you know, the idea was, you know, can this crazy idea work? And it can, and actually has been used on a temporary basis. Like for instance, in Puerto Rico, after, uh, their natural disaster, um, they, they were able to put a bunch of these things up above Puerto Rico and reestablish, uh, cell networks. Cause that's basically what they do is they're like 4g towers in a balloon. Interesting. So they are now going to be used in the first permanent, uh, network, which will be in Kenya covering 50,000 square miles or square kilometers, I think, uh, of above Kenya and uh, above uh, city and country area. And um, see if it says how many there are supposed to be. Several hundred of them, I think it was. Uh, And they're actually, some of them are already in place and some Mm -hmm. of them are already in use. And the people using them have no idea that they happen to be connecting to a balloon 20,000 feet or 20,000 kilometers above them rather than um, uh, actually that number 20,000 kilometers. That's got to be wrong, right? It can't be right. That's I'm like, thinking 20, it's 20,000 like, meters. That's got to be. Yeah. Let me see here. I don't know. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll try to get that number, but right. <clears throat> they're up there. They're not... Um, they're higher than a tower and probably lower than a yes. jet aircraft, right? So, so and they've got 30, uh, 35 of them 
Uh, and they're pretty decent connections. People are already using them without even knowing it. They're 4G. Um, I find that fascinating that, that I, I'm shocked that they're not tethered, to be honest. That was my expectation, yeah. um, is that they'd be tethered for both nope. power and connectivity um, and anchoring. I mean, just making sure that they don't blow away. I can't imagine that, that the power, I mean, the power requirement for running um, uh, a, a cell tower, which is essentially what this is, like you said, uh, is one thing. But the power just to keep the thing in place has got to be uh, fairly substantial as well. Well, I think that is like why, you know, the, the whole idea of being a balloon, right, is a lot of that work is taken care of by just being held aloft in the atmosphere. Um, and then there has to be some use of power, and there are probably solar panels on it. I think there's solar panels hope, to get yeah. some of that. It says there, yeah, well, this one graph I'm looking at shows that they're about 12 miles up. So it's okay. 20 kilometers is what, right? That, yeah. that makes sense, yep. And yep. Uh, so 20,000 meters is what I was right. thinking. Right. The, um, and they come down every 100 days. So, you know, as, you know, kind of, I guess, drone kind of technology. So right. the, they'll come down, they probably just deflate slightly. Uh, and then guide themselves back down. So they come come down. I'm sure they swap out the battery pack and they go back up. Uh, and you know, 35 of them, 100 days. So that means like one every three days has to come down. Mm -hmm. uh, so you know, a job for somebody <laughs> to catch right. the one and come <laughs> down into into the landing area and uh, at, you know, put the battery pack back in and launch it the next day. Um, and yeah, it, it's exciting. Uh, and if you know, this will be a really good, uh, you know, wide area use of this. I I do see something like SpaceX's technology, you know, making it kind of obsolete. But, you know, a satellite cell phone network kind of thing is still a question mark. You know, it's still not a, you know, right. would it really, really work? Eh, I'd like to think so, but we still don't know. And we don't know how many years off it'll be. Uh, and actually, cost may not be that big of a, big of a difference. Like, you know, I mean, maintaining 35, you know, balloon drones above 50,000 square kilometers. Uh, I don't know. That's, that's pretty good. I mean, what I like is, is the redundancy, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, SpaceX's network is a network. Presumably there's a single command and control center, for example. Um, presumably there, it has, I don't want to say single points of failure, but my guess is that there are issues that could affect the network network wide. Uh, I, I, I love the idea of what happened in Puerto Rico where, you know what, whatever our infrastructure is, be it physical towers or SpaceX mm. satellites, oh, crap, it's down. Quick, launch some balloons. Yep. And you've got coverage. Yeah, and these things are a mesh network too. So only oh, cool. some of them need to be in contact with ground towers and, you know, so you could have one that's basically floating above you and not close enough to any actual ground tower to communicate, but right. it will communicate with another balloon and then another balloon. And then that balloon then communicates down to a ground tower that happens to be near and, uh, and it'll work. So, um, yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Uh, it's, and I, and I like it and they do, they look like weather balloons. I mean, of course, at that altitude, you would expect that's what them to be. So a big, like plastic bag hanging over this platform that right. just kind of, uh, you know, falls off of it there. Um, 
I'm curious. I mean, it it makes sense that they're deploying this in Africa for so many different reasons, right? There's so many, so much um, uncovered territory there with respect to, you know, cellular coverage and they can benefit so much from it. Um, I'm curious as to how it uh, interacts with uh, airspace. Uh, flight paths. Well, and, at, at that altitude, it doesn't have to. <laughs> um, 20 kilometers, 12 miles. Well, it shows here, it says, uh, yeah, airliner is about six miles up, 30,000 okay. feet. Okay, and so of course, you know, them. sometimes you go to 40, right? You know, right. Uh, some of the big planes and stuff. But See, I think that the, what is it, the, the SR-31 flies at 60,000 feet or something like that. Yeah. But, so, yeah, so this is well above that. Yeah, it yeah. shows it in the, in the diagram. As a matter of fact, even puts Mount Everest in the diagram and it's that's at 30,000 feet. Uh, so it's even above that. Well, that, you know, for providing, um, you know, service to areas where it's just impossible to put towers. That's one of the criticisms I, I read this article we're linked to about it is the fact that it actually is providing service now over an area that already has cell phone towers. So the real, the real use for it is like when they, when they go and they say, okay, let's expand further out to areas in Kenya that have sure. no service right now. Sure. Absolutely. Um, that makes total sense. But I mean, if you're going to deploy it someplace first, right? Yeah. A, deploy it so that it's not mission critical, and B, deploy it so that when something breaks, you have the opportunity to fix it. I mean, if the balloon over Mount Everest breaks, falls down, and, and goes boom, you're pretty much, that's done, right? You, you launch another balloon at best. <laughs> um, but if it's one that you know lands on a plane in Kenya, you drive the truck out there and you fix it. Hmm. Interesting. So, yeah. 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 But, uh, you know, eventually, Sure. After it's been after it's been proven, you can go to all sorts of different places. Um, but I just love the fact that it's, like I said, I love the redundancy and that it's it's a completely separate technology from the satellite based systems. Um, just because that means they have different strengths, different weaknesses, serve different purposes, and are vulnerable to different things. So, cool. Yeah. So. Let's see. So it's funny. How long do you keep your backups? I keep the you know, with time machine. I just let time machine handle it. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's it's according to the amount of space, um, and I just bought a twelve terabyte hard drive for like two hundred bucks. You have lots um, of space, <laughs> so it's going to go back years and years and years. And and actually, the way time machine works, it will uh, it it tends to, it wants to keep around one copy of every file. Right. And then after it has every file, you know, the next thing it'll it'll use for space is multiple versions of the file. So, you know, if there's some file I deleted like three years ago, um, it's going to try to keep that last version of that file around as long as possible. And when it actually can't anymore, um, that's when you start to get warnings. Like some people do saying, oh, it's got to delete some old stuff from 2014 or, you know, oh, whatever. But yeah, so it's, uh, it does it the, you know, the kind of the way that makes logical sense. So yeah, it depends on the amount of space you've got. You, some people could buy a big hard drive and have everything back to when they first started doing backups. And uh, other people may find they only have a year's worth of stuff on their backup um, if they have enough throughput, like video producers and things like that. I have commented before that I wish the Windows world were that simple. Um, Time Machine, I'm I'm still shocked that nobody has emulated Time Machine um, in Windows. There are piecemeal solutions, but it really does boil down to, uh, you know, I have a backup from Tuesday. How long should I keep it? 
I have a bag, you know, I have a backup of my entire machine that happens every Sunday. Um, you know, how long should I keep that copy? Because another one's going to get created next Sunday. Uh, it's an interesting discussion. I'm working on an, I'm actually updating an existing article on the topic right now. And it actually, especially in the Windows world, it, it opens up some really interesting questions because there are different kinds of backups that we have to worry about. You know, there's the backup you take just before you do a major system upgrade. That's kind of a, as long as the upgrade, as soon as the upgrade is known to work, you can throw that backup away. Um, there's the uh, the daily stuff, the monthly stuff that you mm-hmm. want to keep for you know, a few weeks, a few months, maybe a few years, depending on. Uh, but then there's also the business side of things, which I noticed you didn't mention. Um, and that is very often businesses have their own set of data retention requirements, yes. sometimes imposed by the business that they're in. Uh, it's It turns out to be a non-trivial question to answer, as it turns out. Um, it's just that there are so many different competing requirements uh, for uh, for what might be necessary. I know in my case, I have, um, you know, daily backups pretty much along the time machine model. Everything's getting backed up um, at least daily. Um, I think I have Windows file history turned on on my most important machine. So I've got something pretty close to it. But that's why I say it's it's piecemeal because I've got file history doing the as files change kind of, of backup. And I've got, you know, Mac and Reflect doing a nightly uh, incremental image backup on the machine. Uh, so I've got two different tools than which in your case, or on, on my Mac even, um, are both solved with Time Machine. Uh, but I, I end up keeping, you know, dailies for a couple of months and then the monthly images for about a year. And I have images squirreled away on a machine in my basement that, you know, I'll probably never need these, but I'm a digital pack rat. Um, so if I need a file from that old computer I had 13 years ago, I can go find it. Um, which is, it's, it's, it's odd, but these are, you know, I have lots of disk space. You oh yeah. Up, you end up, um, um, accumulating hard disks over the years. Sure. Um, so it's a difficult problem though, for the consumer, the average consumer to actually answer and to know what the right solution is. So well, uh, when it comes to things like archiving, mm-hmm. which I consider to be a little different, you know, something it's like, I don't need this anymore, but I'm not going to delete it. You know, I'm going to keep it around. Uh, I, I keep I try to keep everything, and so far I've been able to do that, um, barring mistakes and mishaps. Sure. Um, but you know, originally, I mean, I, originally I did that to CDs, right? Burn some CDs, some stuff I don't need anymore, old yep. projects, yep, yep. and then it went to DVDs, and then it, you know, eventually that wasn't feasible anymore. So then it went to drives, and so far I've been able to keep up with archiving everything I've ever made just by using old drives, like for instance, oh, I have a 500 gig drive, you know, external drive for backups or whatever, but now, now time to go to a terabyte drive. Okay, now what do I do with that 500 gig drive? Oh, right. that'll turn into an archive. I'll throw a bunch of stuff on there, clear up 500 gigs of space, mark that drive, put it in the closet. And I'm still at that level where like that 12 terabyte drive replaced a four terabyte drive. Right. And that four terabyte drive now has no use. I am about to <laughs> ex, uh take a bunch of video projects right and the ones i do now the the tutorials i do for youtube i mean they're huge they're like 10 to 25 gigs each day mm-hmm. so i'm going to be putting a bunch of those uh filling that four gig drive up with some of the oldest ones and then getting rid of them off of my drive it's going to i think that might be the end of that like i've reached the end of the road the next time 
I want to clear up some space. I'm simply going to have to go to some of those video, those old video projects, not the actual videos themselves that people see, but the work files, you know, mm -hmm. that have the, all of the materials on them. And you know, they, they're tied in with, you know, uh, all the different layers and the audio and all that stuff, yep, yep, getting yep. rid of those. I will probably for the first time, um, some, at some point, maybe later this year, uh, delete. Oh, some. Uh, <laughs> I don't well, know if I, I mean, could do that. <laughs> well, the thing, the thing I is, first of all, I'm at 2,220 videos as of today. Right. Um, the amount of times I've had to go back to an old video to edit it. Okay. Let's say more than a week after I finished it, you know, oh, sometimes, yeah. Oh, two days later, Oh, let me make a change to this, but more than a week. So it's actually old and I want to go back to it. The amount of times over 2,220 videos has been zero. <laughs> so archiving these has yeah. actually been of no use. Uh, it just makes me feel better. The <laughs> chances, and I'll be doing this for the oldest ones, right? These are using old versions of the operating system, old right. tutorials that I've, that I've done, you know, there's right. no chance I'm good. Now I still have the video. I still have, I'll still have what I produced from it. Right. That, you know, the thing that everybody sees. So if I needed to grab a screen of like, Hey, here's what, when I did this tutorial in 2009, here's what it looked like. <laughs> I still have that. Right? right. I would still be able to pull it from the video. And that's like a, you know, that'd be like a 20 meg video from back then. What will be gone will be the one gig, you know, editing project. Right. That produced that 20 meg video. It's funny. I have had uh, exactly the same position, right? I mean, you know, I've got the videos that I recorded of demonstrating things under Windows XP. And if I needed to update those videos, I would not update those videos. I would re-record those videos with a more with current operating system, mm -hmm. right? You just redo them. There have been, I think, one or maybe two cases where I've wanted to go back and update or make a minor change to a video that I would have recorded, say, a year or two ago. And I think in both cases, um, there was something missing that prevented me from doing that. Uh, mm -hmm. So you end up re-recording the thing anyway. Um, but And yet, I, I, I just, I live in fear of deleting the wrong thing for just that reason, right? It's, <laughs> it's one of those things where, I, why, I, deleting is hard. Well, you could always follow the rule of, uh, you know, that I, I've done in the past uh, for actual physical objects is, I, I get a trash bag <laughs> and I put a bunch of stuff in it that I intend to throw away. It's kind of like the trash will recycle bin on right. your computer. And then I take that trash bag and I seal it. I mean, I, you know, I, I tie a knot in the top. Right. I put it in the garage or somewhere, you know, outside the house, you know, and um, the idea is then I forget about it. And if a year or two later, or maybe the next time I move, <laughs> right. I come upon it, I'm like, well, I guess I didn't need anything <laughs> there, you know, for that period of time. So I could do yep. the same thing here. I could maybe, maybe it's what I should do with this four terabyte drive is put a bunch of stuff on there and say, you know, and seal it, put a piece of t tape around, you know, the port or something and just say, <laughs> this is the date on it. If I don't need to take this tape off and access anything on this drive by, you know, 2021, you know, December 31st, 2021, then, you know, erase this drive or, or throw it away because then we'd all be laughing at four terabyte four, drives. Four terabyte drives? How could you possibly fade a, even a single image on that? The other approach, of course, would be the Marie Kondo everything. Does this video bring you joy? Does it bring you joy? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. yeah no kidding.
Uh, so we both ended up watching Space Force. Yes. What do you think? What? Well, I think <laughs> the people that didn't like Space Force uh, need to uh, chill out a bit because <laughs> it was harmless fun. Um, it was. I I found maybe maybe people were thinking it was going to be something more of, more of a serious deep biting satire on politics and technology. I don't know what they were thinking, but I found it to be you know a little bit of just funny comedy stuff. Uh, a little bit, you know, the comedy was all like bureaucratic government comedy. You know, the type of stuff we enjoyed when we watched stuff like Match or read like Catch-22. Right. You know, oh, government makes stupid decisions because they spend lots of money and it's all a big bureaucracy. That's, you know, it was that kind of thing. And it had, it was harmless to watch. There were a couple times when I, I laughed, uh, you know, in each episode. And other times when I didn't laugh, but I appreciated it. For instance, in episode one, having the base biologist uh, having to clear away the oh, yes. endangered yes. species of lizard every time <laughs> they thought they were going to launch, you know, rocket. So, so they were like, "We'll go for launch," and she'd be out, be out there getting the lizards, putting them in little cages, and then it's like, "Nope, launch canceled," and she puts them back. And then it's like, "No, we're go for launch again," and she has to go and get the lizards again, which is. It's funny because it's exactly the kind of thing that really happens, you know, big government agencies and stuff like that. Um, so there was, you know, there was that. It was, I, I don't know, it was just fun. It was, it was fun stuff with some neat gems of, of uh, satire thrown in uh, here and there throughout the, throughout the show. Yep. It was a mix, a, a mix of a lot of different stuff. I, I agree. It was light, fluffy fun. It's not the stuff of Emmys. Yeah. Um, or, or Oscars, whatever's going to cover, I guess it'll be Emmys in this case. Um, but, um, I enjoyed it. We enjoyed watching it. I was surprised actually that they kind of sort of left it as a cliffhanger. Yeah. Um, you know, they're, they're, <laughs> they're, they're doubling down on, on not only do we hope there's a season two, but we're going to make our audience want one. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I enjoyed that as well. Um, I, it's funny. I did not watch The Office. Did you? I, I, I wasn't a huge fan, right. I, but I did watch some episodes. So I'm, I'm familiar enough with it. And of course, yeah, the, uh, the producer uh, of this um, was... Right. So I, I can't really you know, draw any great parallels between it and The Office. And of course, that's what they were advertising it as or promoting it as uh, when they uh, when they were in the process of releasing it. Uh, so I have mixed feelings about Steve Carell. He's he's good. He's he's a, an awesome actor. Uh, some of his roles really appeal to me. Some of them don't. And uh, this was one that did. He did a he did a good job. I, it turned out not to be as um, as slapstick and as um, I don't even want to know what to call it self deprecating almost uh, than I was expecting it to be. His character had more meat than I was expecting. Yeah, it had complexity. There was yeah. in some ways he was a very um, you know, uh, uh, capable, you know, leader. Yes. You know, in yeah. some ways he wasn't, he, you know, they were making fun of some of the stuff, yes. but it, you know, much more so than his superior officers or peers yeah. or whatever. I mean, his he, former he, boss, yeah. he, he could roll his sleeves up and actually get stuff right. done right. in some cases. So yeah. Yes. And, uh, John Malkovich, it was neat to see him in a comic role. Like that was that, the weirdest was, role in the entire series though. I don't know how yeah. to, how you describe or, or <laughs> even explain that kind of a role in a real situation. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't like the, uh, the only thing that bugged me was it was a very strange 
uh, portrayal of Colorado because it, it, it was in it, it was supposed to be you know Space Force in Colorado, but in some by some fictional small town out in the middle of nowhere, which I can't even imagine where that would actually be. I mean, there are places in the middle of nowhere, but they wouldn't be that far. I mean, they made it sound like it was such a so distant from everywhere else, and there were some things that just were so bizarre. I was like, what? I I don't know. It was a very weird. Um, is definitely the kind of thing where obviously nothing was shot in Colorado and nobody writing anything I think was from Colorado because they were a little off base. Not that, it, not that it matters. I was going to say uh, you, you weren't supposed to take it personally. Gary. I, I know <laughs> it was just, it was just a very weird, like it felt more like, I don't know. They were talking about, I don't know, New Mexico or somewhere else where it was a little more Western or Southwestern style uh, something. Anyway. Yeah. It doesn't, doesn't really matter. But they did. Uh, they did occasionally end up in Denver, um, in the show. Oh, really? And yeah, except that even then it felt weird because it was like, well, they went to that. There was a restaurant where he went on that date. Oh, right, right. In the second to last, you know, and it was some weird, like, like it was still some out out of the way diner, country western diner type of thing that they went to Denver for. And I was like, now if you're going to go to Denver for a date, you're probably going to go to like. <laughs> Ruth Chris Steakhouse, you know, any place you would go to like the normal, like a normal city place. Why would you go to Denver to go to a little like Western roadhouse thing? Anyway, never mind. (laughs) Now you know how I feel about many of the shows that are shot or supposedly set in Seattle. Yeah. (laughs) Wait, you can't get there from there. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so in, in other shows, this is, this is almost a, uh, I'll call it a guilty pleasure. So did you watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Did I? It's, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's my number two favorite show of all time. Really? Yes. Awesome. Uh, what's, what's huge. number one? That would be a show that's been on the air for more than 50 years. And it's an important part of my childhood and I enjoy it as an adult too. Doctor Who. Okay. Okay. Cool. I I don't know that I would have placed them as one and two, but absolutely there. Yeah, there's no relation between them. It's just way, they no, to be, yeah. yeah, no, they're way up there though. I, I I agree and appreciate both shows. You might enjoy Warrior Nun. Oh, okay. Warrior Nun. It's on Netflix. Yeah, I've heard of it. And I I read the um uh the the re the the promos for it before it was released a few, couple of weeks ago, and I thought oh, they're shooting for another Buffy, right? Because it's another, um, as someone who didn't think that highly of the show, um, it's, it's wrote, he said that, yep, it's another chosen one show, mm-hmm. right? Where you have an individual who unwittingly is the chosen one to overcome some big bad evil. Um, there is a talisman involved. Um, there are supporting characters involved. There's lots of, um, you know, lots of, of, of almost, well, it is based on a comic book. So I'll say comic book drama involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it, again, it's not the kind of stuff where you're going to go for uh, uh, high, high drama quality Emmy nominated kind of stuff. Once again, it was to my way of thinking, very entertaining. I enjoyed watching it. Uh, one of the things that was interesting is it's, it's set in, they don't play it up, but it's actually set in Spain, and it's actually filmed in Spain, Spain and hmm. Portugal, I believe. So the sets are absolutely beautiful. But all of the actors, there's in fact only one actor in the entire show that I recognized. Um, he ends up playing a villain, 
but uh, he, uh, uh, everybody else, um, A, they have, uh, for the most part, the ones that are supposed to speak English do so perfectly, even though they are actors and actresses from, um, you know, from over there. Uh, so they've done some really good coaching um, and everything else just fit really well into place. Anyway, I, it's, it's, I'll just throw that out there as something that uh, folks may or may not enjoy, <laughs> which is really uh, um, uh, not really taking a stand, I suppose. I know that some people, you know, really, my wife, for example, was not impressed. She, she didn't really go for it, but I enjoyed watching it. So I just thought I'd throw that out there as, a, uh, as something for folks to try. Cool. Cool. And speaking of uh, recommendations, what, what yes. have you got? What did you, what did you publish this week at Ask the Leo that uh, so the one that um, I'm sending people to right now is how to get the latest Windows 10 update. Windows 10 is currently in the middle of releasing its uh, biannual, twice yearly, uh, feature update. This is the 2004 update, which, of course, 20 is for the year 2020, and 04 was the original targeted release month, uh, or actually completion month, uh, April. So it's 2004. Um, it is in the process of being rolled out, uh, depending on a whole bunch of different stuff. Your Windows 10 machine may or may not already have it, may or may not be ready for it, may or may not have to wait a while. In how to get the latest Windows 10 update, I describe uh, three different approaches to getting it, which one I recommend. And for those of you who are uh, champing at the bit, as it turns out to be called, uh -huh. how to try and uh, force the issue and get it right now. Darn it. It's askleo.com slash 123789. Cool. Uh, I've got a video this week on uh, 39 tips and tricks to use to get the most out of macOS stickies. Stickies is this weird little thing where you could create little post-it notes on your computer screen with text or images and stuff. And it's been around for decades. Mm -hmm. Before OS 10, it was around. And I really don't pay much attention to it. So when I was looking at some YouTube videos recently by other people, I was surprised to see that they were using stickies. And then... With macOS Big Sur, I was surprised to see when they were showing the icons that there was a new Stickies icon. Stickies is the same in macOS Big Sur, but it was one of those things where I just assume at some point they're going to just kill it off. But no, they actually took the time to come up with a new icon for it in Big Sur. So I thought, well, maybe this isn't as dead as I thought. <laughs> so I, I went into it and found all these little tidbits and neat things that you could do uh, with Stickies and just put them in a big, long, huge video list that you can look through uh, and find some cool stuff whether you use it or or not interesting so um as you know i record uh this podcast uh, upstairs on my mac pro mm -hmm. and i just fired up stickies for probably the first time i mean i've, mm -hmm. I've used mac probably for close to a decade now and uh look at that there's uh post-it notes on my desktop I yeah, wonder what they're, I wonder what they're do, good for. I'll have to look at your video. It, yeah, there are actually some <laughs> surprising things that you can, I, I just experiment with them for a couple of days and was surprised at some of the things that they could do. Uh, like, I, for instance, dragging and dropping images into them and then just having a little picture of like your family or your dog, you know, just on your, you know, on your desktop, Interesting. Uh, but not as like, oh, altering your desktop background, et cetera, et cetera, but just right. having just a little thing off to the corner, you know, anyway, cool. there'll be a link. So, cool. I think that pretty much wraps us up for this week. Yep. Show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh105. 
If you've got a comment or a question, you know by now to hit us up on Facebook and Twitter at The TEH Podcast, or you can always leave us a comment on the show notes page. We definitely do read those, talk about them amongst ourselves, and respond if it's appropriate. Thanks, as always, for listening, and we will see you here again next week. Take care. Bye.